Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. You know, last week was a rather cathartic ride and a legendary episode, might I add, Amanda. Oh my gosh. I, on my personal account, oh, spoiler, uh, Kim runs the department Instagram account. But some of you figured that out and were messaging me personally on my personal account, which I loved. I loved hearing from all of you. There's messages still rolling in. It's so exciting to hear how meaningful that episode was for so many people. Yeah, I agree. And to hear how many assholes are still (laughs) roaming this earth. (laughs) I know. They just grew up. They just got older. They didn't grow up. There's no growing up happening here. No. There's no coming to terms with your own assholeness. It's just No, definitely not. (laughs) I will say, based on some of the messages – I received some people's stories had sort of like a follow-up update from like 2018 or something. And the recurring trend was that these dudes have not changed. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I, I feel like <laughs> I, I think it's actually they maybe have gotten worse, just older <laughs> and and a little bit, a little bit more like antagonistic. And yeah, that's. I will tell you, that is a good way to describe it because some of the follow-up messages that people would get from these dudes were mean, but yeah. in, under the guise of being apologetic. They're negging. Yeah. New strategy here, guys. <laughs> when you're going to apologize for someone, <laughs> it's best to follow the apology with some negging so yeah. you don't <laughs> sacrifice any of your power. Exactly. Can you That's- imagine – that's that's right. I mean, I would love to know how many of these assholes have achieved anything beyond, you know, maybe the height of their status within like the two thousands. Like, where are they ten years from now? You know, like where where are they? Because most of them, like the really bad ones, they're they're not in a great place. It's true. I mean, you and I had talked about this offline, where a lot of the guys that we specifically remembered treating us badly and the aughts. I mean, I hate to use this term, they're losers, mm-hmm. you know, like that was the peak of their life. And I think they get really bummed out that it wasn't the peak of ours. Yeah. And yeah. the like the worst part is like, you you know, you, you keep wondering, oh, how could I have done it differently? How could I have been with someone different? But, you know, you, I, you know. I'm sure you've tried being with kind of the norm, the normies, and you still have tried to be with some of the normies. And like, they just, there's something strange where they just don't get it. Like they don't get being like hyper-specific and enjoying music or food or different types of culture in the same way. And it's just, yeah, it's, yeah, it doesn't I'm, work. So it's like, okay, well, what options do we have? I know we, it's, it's not great. It's not a great situation. <laughs> Listen, if I could turn back time I mean, to be honest, I think we're just born this way. I don't think that we elected to follow this path in our lives, no matter 
what the one guy said to me about pursuing my <laughs> career as a hipster. I, it was really more of a calling. Uh, if I could go back and be like a quote normal person, you, you mean know, a, nor- a normie? Yeah, I might be. I might be willing to try that out. It's like so hard for me to imagine. Like I don't know where because I, like Kim, I cannot remember a time in my life where I wasn't weird. Yeah, to most too. people, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm the youngest of three daughters, and I think I just I gravitated towards being different. Just, mm-hmm. just to stand out in my even my own family, um, but e- but even you know my my, my sister who we're, we're only fifteen months apart, we all kind of gravitated towards like alternative and um, you know NPR in just like you know the college radio and kind of we both kind of liked the slightly different and alternative lifestyles also so it wasn't what's it called like um nature versus nurture uh, nature versus nurture yeah. right it's not like our families have nurtured us into an alternative no experience. my family definitely thinks i'm a freak you know? <laughs> i your mean family i family definitely is a free your family my family your, is a freak sisters, but like yeah yeah no my, the family that i grew up in is is like a nightmare uh but those people definitely thought I was a freak. I think my other family thinks I'm fine, but they also probably are like, why are you and Dustin so obsessed with such weird things? Well, you know, this week we're going to continue a bit more into some of the aughts trends. Um, not quite as as dark this time, um, but still really interesting and super fascinating. And I spent a ton of time trying to research why some of these things happened. You know, I'm going to be taking a, a deeper look um, at some of the scammers, some more scammers in that hipster culture and kind of the trends behind them. And Amanda, I believe you're talking about irony today. Yes. And you know what? I have to say that this was probably one of the most difficult episodes for me because it was like, it's not such a linear black and white thing. And I had to read so much and then like reflect on it for a long time before I could write the script. Like it was just really, really challenging to get all the pieces I wanted and then to shape them into a narrative. But I'm really excited to talk about it. I feel like I really made some progress here and I can't wait for you all to hear. It's just like a more philosophical Mm -hmm. episode than I'm used to doing. I guess I would say that. Awesome. I'm super excited to hear it. I I feel like as we dig back into the 2000s and as people, apparently it's kind of a trend to to be reflecting on the 2000s now. Um, there you go. Particularly, you know, in, in the, you know, in the guise of even like Britney Spears and all of those things, we're going to probably mm-hmm. be seeing more and more of people reflecting back on this time. So I guess we're kind of ahead of the trend and dissecting it, you know, first is kind of exciting. Um Anyway, but don't forget if you have a hot tip, any funny anecdotes, um, thought-provoking commentary, you know, please leave us a message on our hotline, 717-925-7417. You can find that on our website, uh, thedepartment.world. It's also on our Instagram, at underscore the underscore department, um, which, you know, we obviously do lots of, like, inside jokes and references and um, we tell you when when new episodes are dropping so please please follow us there 
Also, if you are enjoying the show, you know, it always helps if you stop by uh, Apple Podcasts and leave us, leave us a star rating and a review um, so that we can get found by more and more people to join our little community here. Um, anyway, so Amanda, do we have some hotline messages? We do. We have two this week. Uh, before I play them, I just want to remind you all that as one of these callers did, uh, you can actually record your message using your phone or your computer and send it to us. You know, uh, the episode of Clothes Horse that just came out today, we actually had four messages, all of which were recorded using people's phones. And they sound so good. Uh, but it's also kind of fun to call and actually leave a voicemail. So it's just all about like what your style is. If you call and you get cut off because I think there's about a two and a half minute limit, just go ahead and call back. One of our callers today actually did that and I just seamed them together. You'll hardly be able to tell that anything happened. <laughs> so our first call today is from Bombi and it's the nicest message I think we've received yet. So yes. let's give it a listen. Hi, ladies. My name is Bombi, and I'm from the West Coast, but currently live in Central Florida. Now, I was living in the Pacific Northwest during the height of the whole hipster movement. And I got to tell you, I really enjoyed it. It was pretty glorious. My blood probably was 80% coffee. But I just want to tell you... Uh, gals, that you, you guys just are awesome. Like all the information you give, all the sharing you do, all the experience that you share, and I'm sure you do a ton of research and you put so much time and so much effort and it totally shows. And it's very genuine. And you ladies just have a great time with each other. So it in turn has me having a great time and it has us, I'm just going to say us, all the listeners of the department podcast. And it's just fantastic. So it's a piece of some Gen X uh, warm and fuzzies, and I love it. It's just fantastic. I work with a lot of kids, and I don't think they get it, uh, but that's okay. It's all good because you ladies get it, and I just just keep doing what you're doing. I really enjoy it. I appreciate it, and yeah, thank you. What a great message. It was such a great message, and we were listening to it together, Amanda and I. And there was the part on, on it was about eighty <laughs> percent, and then she says coffee, and I, I, I would have sworn that she would have sent alcohol because Me both Amanda too. and I were like. <laughs> I specifically, I think there was a period there where my blood would have been eighty percent sparks, yeah. which we have not <laughs> talked about enough in the series. Uh, don't worry, we will talk about sparks at some point. We're not even close to being done with the hipsters. I swear, there's still so much more to talk about. That was such a sweet message, and you know, I feel like sometimes I'm just literally in my own little vacuum here, and sometimes I talk to you, and sometimes I talk to my mom. <laughs> You know, yeah, yep, so I hear like, you. You know, it's like, oh, there's actually people listening. Like that's that feels really good, dude. I agree because one of the drawbacks to making a podcast is that you, I mean, we can see some reports vaguely that people are listening, but like, we don't know most of the people who are listening, and we don't know how many people are listening. And sometimes you are worried that you're putting all this work. I mean, I would guess 
that probably Kim and I spend at least 20 hours on every episode between yeah. research and editing. And sometimes you're like, is that just like a waste of my time? Is this something I'm doing for me? Is it just because you want an excuse to talk about something? And it just feels so amazing to actually hear from all of you and hear your voices yeah. and know what you're thinking about after you listen to us talk. I mean, it is the best thing ever, seriously. Yeah, it definitely keeps it 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 keeps me warm at night. It does. <laughs> knowing it knowing does. that you're making a difference and that's kind of the point, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I just I love it. Yeah. Okay, well, we have a another message. This one's from Liz and I have to tell you this one gave me so much to think about. I'll talk about it after we listen. Hi, Amanda and Kim. My name is Liz, and I'm a big fan of your podcast. Um, I discovered it about six weeks ago and have been listening voraciously. Um, I wanted to call in with some hipster stories. I didn't know I was a hipster until, you know, probably 2012 or 2013. I didn't really identify with the label until then, um, but I lived in Echo Park in Los Angeles in 2010, and um, it was really dangerous at the time and um, was not adorable. Adorable would be the last word you'd use to describe the neighborhood. Um, like my, I lived in a little bungalow on a compound of bungalows, and the neighbor across the street, like, would always offer me insultingly low sums of money for sex. Um, like, it wasn't a neighborhood where, like, a single 20-year-old felt comfortable living on her own. Um, and now today, I haven't been to L.A. in a couple of years, but people tell me Echo Park is the place to be. And I just, I can't imagine the idea of hipsters infiltrating that neighborhood and giving it a totally different makeover. Because um, at the time it was so inelegant and it was, um, honestly, it was a very sad neighborhood. There were clearly families, immigrant families living in abject poverty. Um, and actually I worry for them and where they went now that the, you know, bungalows in Echo Park are probably insanely expensive. Um, so that's the first point that I wanted to make of three points. Um, the second one is uh, in 2014, I was living in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn, and I showed up to a date, and the guy and I were wearing the exact same outfit. We were both wearing uh, a tight black turtleneck, tight black skinny jeans, and black combat boots. And I said to him, oh, my God, we're wearing the same outfit. Um, but he wasn't freaked out by that or anything. It was just like, yeah, this is this is what we wear. Um, so I always get a laugh out of that. Uh, the third thing that I wanted to bring up to you is the role that thinness played in the female hipster aesthetic. Um, just to overshare for fun, I lost a lot of weight between, like, 2012 and actually that's not right like I would say 2011 and 2013 and by 2013 I was pretty skeletal like I was like between a size zero and a size two on a body that naturally wants to be husky and it was interesting to me 
how much attention I got and how much, um, how differently people treated me being, uh, quite thin and really matching that hipster aesthetic of, you know, skinny black jeans, black turtleneck, um, and, and just looking kind of pallid and underfed. Or at least that was my sense of what the aesthetic was at that time. Um, my roommate was very involved in the hipster scene and uh, was involved at Vice. And she seemed really anguished over being a size 8. And I, I wonder if there was some sort of implicit message that hipster women need to make themselves small. Food for thought. Anyway, thank you so much for all you do. I really appreciate you both. Thank you. Bye. Liz's call, the thing that really stuck with me here was the idea of thinness Mm -hmm. in hipster culture. Once again, this goes back to this idea that we assumed that the hipster culture was superior to the mainstream culture, which we, as we know, and we've touched on in the past, was like really – really pushing the agenda of like super skinny women, right? Like Mm -hmm. I remember in the aughts, a lot of different television program came out that like actually sort of set off an alarm for certain, you know, critics and just like sort of cultural observers where they were like, these are the skinniest actresses we've ever seen on TV. Like what is going on? And that was the mainstream culture. So the hipster culture was supposed to be better than that, but it was just as like, fat phobic and shitty like pro Anna for sure and I I would say that like I constantly felt like I could not be thin enough period ever do you do you remember that band the kills yes yes I there was like this insane article that came out during the aughts and you know obviously you know our our icons were generally you know musicians and things like that and you know a lot of the the girls looked up to you know kind of cool um alt alt rock girls and and i remember there was this 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 girl and um she was in in the kills and i had some friends that knew her i think back in chicago and she used to be pretty curvy and like you know a good healthy weight and then she went through this insane period of basically just a crazy eating disorder and lost a ton of weight and there's like a weird vogue or nylon article all about how she just like did that um uh the lemon juice cayenne pepper diet oh my god i forgot about that that's an odds thing for sure she did that to the point that she was basically in a wheelchair like like it and but but she didn't even talk about it in a bad way and it wasn't a bad thing like that is what you did was you you needed to achieve this wafiness it wasn't like britney spears must muscly body it was just this very life like skinny skinny little thing to fit into those skinny jeans and the skinny leather jackets and that skinny turtle turtleneck you know well, and you know what? You touched on something really important there, which was the idea of like physical fitness and exercise. That was something the hipsters were not down with. Like you could yeah. ride your bike and you could walk, but like if someone found out you were at the gym or doing like, remember Tybo? Yeah, you know, right. like that Zumba. Zo- oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you would be embarrassed, right? Like you, like the expectation is that you would be waifishly thin and yeah. not healthy. Basically, yeah. like no one would be, you know, engaging in physical activity. That was just like uncool. I mean, even just that, like, 
yes, you could ride a bike, but it also couldn't be like too nice of a bike. You know, it's just like also silly. But I also was thinking of Meg White from The White Stripes, who was, I mean, at most a size eight when The White Stripes emerged on the scene. And she was another one that like lost a lot of weight. And then suddenly magazines were like running photos of her and her like magical transformation and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it just was once again like – we expect you to be as thin as possible, but we definitely don't want you to be strong or powerful yeah. or even healthy. And I do like think Liz like heroin on some, chic, but probably yeah. like cocaine and cigarettes. Like totally. just don't and eat. coffee. Yeah. Yeah, coffee. exactly. And don't eat. And like, you know, working in fashion, I saw that yes. every single day. There was this one coworker I had who was incredibly thin. And the only thing she ate every day was this small side dish side size soup from the cafeteria which couldn't have been more than half a cup of soup and that's how you have to live if you want to be that thin I mean yes not all people right some people like look at my husband are incredibly thin naturally and they're like living on like five baguettes a day but most women most people you only get that body with extreme intervention you know yeah I, mean, I think we just need to destigmatize having a normal body. Well, and the only the one person that really did not not the only person, but one person that did go against those norms was uh what's her name from the gossip? Oh, Beth, Beth Ditto. Ditto. Yeah, so she's a Portlander. Yeah. Um and I actually met her at South by Southwest one year. It was right before their super major breakthrough album came out, like what the one with Standing in the Way of Control on it. It was like they were mm-hmm playing songs from that, but I don't think it had come out yet. And that year I was at a show in Austin, you know, at South by Southwest, and I couldn't find my license. And this was really bad because I had to fly back to Portland in another day and also, you know, get into shows. And I was looking around for it. And Beth, who does not know me, came up to me and was like, what's going on? And I was telling her, and she literally mobilized a bunch of security guards to look for my ID, which – was really so nice. And she texted me the next day to see how it had gone. I said, I couldn't find it. And she's like, well, okay, I talked to my tour manager and this is what they said you need to do at the airport. And I was able to fly home. In fact, the security was so lax despite this being, you know, post 9-11 that I somehow got a lighter through. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) uh, lovely person, Beth Ditto. And definitely a groundbreaker, you know, like a disruptor, if you will. She in was featured world. in tons of fashion magazines, and she was kind of one of the only people that some of like the really aggressively uh, thin designers actually would dress. Because she's cool as shit, you know. Cool. Yeah, clearly cool <laughs> yeah. as shit, and so talented. So, and, wait, like, and then, and, and then one person, one, you know. Do you remember, remember when Karen O lost all that weight too? Yes, same thing. And then suddenly she was being same rewarded. Thing. Yeah. By the media, by designers. I mean, I just – it bums me out because these were the women we looked up to. Mm -hmm. You know, so that gets into your head. I mean, once again, the hipsters had this idea that their culture was superior to the mainstream, but it was just as bad, if not worse, because it was so confusing for the people in it. Yes. And just going on to this Echo Park thing (laughs) (laughs) – 
<laughs> Liz, I live in Echo Park. Um, I've lived here since I think 2016. And I'm sure it is so vastly different from 2010. And of course, it's basically just that same, you know, hipster Williamsburg thing where hipsters can kind of live and make anything start to be cool. Like they actually prefer it to be dilapidated. And they, you know, obviously, <laughs> obviously they're, you know, they're pushing a lot of people out, but there's still a ton of, you know, low income places around here. Um, and it's just kind of like everybody's just you know, living amongst each other. I think that that story about your net, your neighbor offering you money, like, but like, but insultingly low amounts of money to have sex. It's, oh and that's, that's one of the reasons why I always wore headphones in Williamsburg, actually really anywhere. It was because people did say nasty things to you all the time. And oh. I was just like, I don't even want to hear it. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, that's everywhere. Or yeah. at least it was everywhere. I think it still is everywhere, you know. And Echo Park is pretty – it is pretty cool now. And it's really just about the different establishments that are in here and obviously the safety of the, of the area and everything. But there's still – like there's t- still lots of homelessness and um, and that's just – it's just something that you're – you come to expect and, um, and you kind of just – you know, you kind of live with it, but it, you do get a lot of really great coffee shops and restaurants and mm-hmm, um, it's mm-hmm. so beautiful. Obviously, you know that, you know, mm-hmm. you're making me homesick. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, anyway, thank you, Liz, for calling. Thank you, Bombi, for calling. You totally make our day when you call. So if any of the rest of you who are listening have anything you want to say, a thought that you had while listening, please just pause and call us right now. All right. Well, are you ready to get into the two other scams that I wanted to bring up? <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> love scams, okay? <laughs> and these aren't just scams. These are 2,000 hipster scams. Yeah. So the first scam for this week I'm going to cover is that of the infamous JT Leroy, Wonder <laughs> Kid and Literary Prodigy. So the story is part performance piece, deception, literary masterpiece and hipsterati saga all kind of rolled into one it is such a legendary story and it is almost completely unbelievable i will it remind is. people you know what yeah, yeah i had like forgotten about it and then a couple years ago dustin and i watched that documentary which i think you watched to prepare for this right mm-hmm. and i was just like i can't believe this really happened like if at the end they had been like psych this is a fiction movie i'd be like yeah it was too unbelievable (laughs) you know (laughs) well it's likely why we've actually seen a a movie two documentaries and a few books and countless journalism pieces on it but of course since it happened so long ago it it it's not like you know constantly within you know the the a conversation piece except for the most recent movie i think was 2019 with K- with case two oh yeah i Which haven't, I haven't seen yet. that one but i'd watch it i like case yeah, two me too so you know i've actually always thought it was super fascinating and after watching one of the documentaries and seeing how it all unfolded i became really obsessed with it um so i actually do highly recommend watching the documentary author the JT Leroy mm-hmm, story mm-hmm. is streaming on Amazon Prime, which I'm sure most of you have Amazon Prime, even though it's extremely unsustainable. It is just kind of how we are getting through this pandemic. Um, but, you know, it's all on there. Um, there's another documentary 
And then there is one, the 2019 film starring Case Stu. I think that one's also at Amazon Prime. I have to check. I got to watch that one. I mean, this this story is so unbelievable. I just <laughs> still, I still just can't believe it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> And, you know, so so this documentary that I watched, and which I will be referencing, it comes from the perspective of the writer. Um, so it definitely has a very interesting insider perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amanda, have you read Sarah? The book Sarah? I have not. I read the book in the aughts. It, okay. I really, really enjoy it. I highly recommend it. It is not a long read. Um, it is, you know, it is a cult novel for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it came out in the, in 2000, it was a cult novel with a mysterious hipster looking author with this amazing kind of blonde mullet wig that mm-hmm. really, really looks like a wig. Like it's kind of like <laughs> so shocking thing though, or maybe I'm thinking of a different book by JT Lurie. Is Sarah supposed to be a memoir or is that the next book? It is technically supposed to be a memoir, and the 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 one that you're talking about is um, it's called uh, "The Heart Is Deceitful Above All yes, Things." Yes, yes, yes. That is, is what the movie is. That is yes, what the movie is. Okay. That's the movie exactly. Um, and I would just say that, like, definitely, "The Heart Is Deceitful" is supposed to be a memoir, and it would have been fine as a fiction book. Well, they're all tagged as fiction books. Now they are. And they they were back then. They were always oh, tagged really? as fiction. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. It was okay. supposed to be like semi-autobiographical. Yes. Um, it's it's a bit of a mess. Anyway, um, I, <laughs> <It> actually, <laughs> I actually loved JT's style amongst everything. Like it was my style icon. Oh, yeah. I, that you were the mullet girl. The mullet, the hat, like that beautiful hat. Like he just killed that beautiful hat, like the black blazer. It was just this amazing, amazing look. And it was actually one of the reasons why I read the book. Cause I was just like, what is all this about? You know, it's not like early two thousands, you had a ton of uh, opportunity to go online and research people, you know, No, you couldn't, it would be a lot easier than to scam everyone. Yeah. You know? So I want to step back before getting into the scam, just kind of to set this the tone, I wanted to like figure out what was happening kind of before or what was happening within the like the literature world. So I was really curious about the trends in that world. And I was super overjoyed to discover something that's really relevant to today. And Amanda, you may talk about this a little bit too, because it's so pervasive in the anti-irony world. So I'm not going to get super deep into it. Um, and anyway, so during this time, there was this trend um, of the new hip late 90s early aughts literati coming around with these like really fresh voices um zadie smith's white teeth dave eggers a heartbreaking mm-hmm. work of a staggering genius david sedaris's me talk pretty one day jonathan franzen's the correction and they were actually all under this movement called the new sincerity yes i'm gonna touch on this briefly but cool. i mean these books were all incredible like all of these it's writers amazing. i love them right at the same time period yes yes yeah which is which this is what i thought was really fascinating because i was like oh i didn't know about this and now i understand this perspective of it more um and the new sincerity is some sometimes described as post postmodernism, and it was popularized in the 90s by david foster wallace um who by the way has been me too um but i do think he's an amazing thought leader 
um, maybe not amazing um, <laughs> in some well, He actually ways. also is deceased. He is. He did. He died in 2008. Of he, suicide. He, of suicide, yes. yeah. Yes. Um, anyway, so uh, the, this concept that he kind of was popularizing really bought um, built a lot of momentum into the aughts and he had a really loud voice in this time period. So it was able to kind of get out there. So it was a trend that ranged from literature to music, to poetry, even a cultural movement. Um, what's really fascinating about the new sincerity is that it wasn't ironic. It shows to recognize that irony was problematic and embrace sincerity, honesty, human connection, and morality in whatever form that was. You know, Cat Power, Arcade Fire, Joanna Newsom, Neutral Milk Hotel, for example, even Wes Anderson had been considered part of the new sincerity, according to a lot of critics. Um, and that just kind of gives some context to this. And all those authors that I listed off, those are all in the new sincerity vein. Um, within that literature mo- movement right during this time period. So David Foster Wallace had some really revolutionary thoughts on how postmodernism's cr- uh, cynical, ironic, self-deprecating, self-conscious, and meta-nature was pervasive in nearly all pop culture, as well as different like marketing, which was actually just poisoning our culture. Um, some of the most relevant Quotes and commentaries on the new sincerity actually came from the 1990s, which is actually very ironic. Um, but Lord have mercy, just wait till the aughts when it was practically a religion and in nearly everything we consumed, appropriated, watched, and believed in. Um, so it kind of is like all he was doing was talking about how this irony was going to destroy our culture. And, and, uh, and it kind of, in some ways, really did hurt us. You know, I'd love to keep talking about the new sincerity movement. And I actually think that we should talk about it more in some future episodes, particularly when we get into the oddies, um, because this theory and shift away from, from the aughts blatant misuse of irony as humor was not serving to actually entertain, but ended up depleting us emotionally and creating a toxic culture mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and shift away from irony. People were so exhausted some creators actually did start to embrace a little bit after he's, you know, David Foster Wallace started talking about this, that new sincerity. And it brought some post aughts refreshing shows like the office and parks and rec and community um, that it did use irony, but they brought in the sincerity. Um, and so it kind of brought in all these different shifts in many aspects of the culture that we see today. Anyway, I digress. Amanda will likely get into this even more. So JT Leroy was in theory, the embodiment of the new sincerity style, pure, tragic, deep, real, or so we thought. Um, (laughs) Additionally, (laughs) we also talked about the celebrity and how that was celebrated so much in the aughts. So there was this interest in scouring for some literary celebrity at the time, offering up young voices to capture the zeitgeist and become the voice of the generation. I think D- Dave Eggers kind of was that. Oh, but for JT, sure. JT was cooler and hipper and really mm-hmm. fit that bill. Um, <laughs> so he visually burst on the scene in 2000 after being a very shy writer in the 90s, but also very popular. 
um, suddenly making uh, appearances and flanked by supporting celebs, giving him tips, doing his readings, calling him and talking to him for hours on the phone. He was beloved until they realized the truth that he didn't exist. I still can't believe this. And all of it was a fabrication of a woman named Laura Albert with her sister-in-law disguised almost like as a puppet of JT for real life appearances. So I've read a lot of other journalism that appears and rightly so to be very wounded by the con. So there may, may be various different tellings of the story that put Laura in a much harsher light and are cons- uh, uh, convinced that she developed this whole situation to gain a foothold in the industry while hiding behind a lie. I'm choosing to tell it from the information I pulled by watching the documentary in a little bit more optimistic light. Um, and so here it goes. So essentially Laura Albert had been abused as a child in the seventies, neglected by her parents um, and was placed in several um, mental health facilities occasionally as a child. Eventually she became a ward of the state. So you can only imagine, you know, how, that can really change a person, you know? Uh, so she began to dissociate from reality and embody different personas to help her cope with her mental health and trauma through her teens and all the way through and into adulthood. This led her to create a teenage boy named Terminator when she was in her thirties and she proceeded to call a suicide crisis hotline in the nineties. I think it's a little unclear if she actually was suicidal I think they they implied that she was pretty suicidal and she was using Terminator as a way to communicate her um, anguish to the suicide prevention hotline. So she started to formulate a persona and felt comfort in using him as a vessel to communicate with a therapist who she actually ended up working with for years, like through the whole JT Leroy situation. And there is some, (laughs) there is some, a uh, conversation that he actually knew that this was a scam later on or not really a scam, but that JT was uh, not real, was like a fictional person. Mm-hmm. But, but back then Terminator was a real life human being in need of help to this, um, uh, to this therapist. So he actually encouraged Terminator to start writing. And there was some arguably incredible outpouring and beautiful writing that came from this avatar who was just starting to v- develop his own identity and history. But mind you, Laura had a creative writing degree. So she was immensely talented and she was, you know, educated. But she essentially hid behind JT. She felt that her weight made her ugly, self-conscious, and unacceptable by society's standards to even be considered as a popular literary talent and worried that people would judge her. Um, And I think that's like a point to look back on, even as we were just talking about how weight, you know, really affected the, the, the pretty much everyone in the aughts. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if she did really want to become one of these voices, she didn't feel like she'd be able to be that voice in the body that she was in because right. of the way that she looked. So she does actually end up getting bi- gastric bypass surgery um, after JT starts bringing money in. 
and she does lose a lot of weight. So you'll see her in, in the documentary, you'll see old pictures of her, you know, uh, you know, a lot more shapely. And then she loses lots of weight at, to a point that she's extremely thin. And it's kind of shocking. Um, so this story actually does remind me of how brands get built based on trends. Uh, looking at what the market is dictating and demanding, almost as if Laura didn't think her personal brand would ever be able to scale to the level of popularity, even though she is so talented. So she created a person in the industry that the industry would actually eat up. And she did. But just like with brands, there's an accountability to be authentic in the mission and the values. And if you're not, which we've found with brands like Everlane, um, you know, you're setting yourself up for a huge fallout. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she's a great writer, as I mentioned, um, but she's also very smart and very persistent, and I suppose quite a bit manipulative. Um, so she used the phone and fax machines and various connections and her therapist, actually, to locate and intrigue iconic writers for mentorship and guidance as JT. People wow. really gravitated to this quote unquote person behind these stories, which gave the writing an authenticity and sincerity, which, as I mentioned, was becoming a really popular trend at the time, especially in the new voices. So Laura continued to fabricate a really rather tragic story uh, and backstory that JT or Jeremiah Terminator Leroy was a transgendered teen hustler whose mother pimped him out as a prostitute at truck stops throughout the South until winding up on the streets of San Francisco in the 90s. At some point, the story um, that she had wound actually gave him HIV positive. Mm -hmm, I remember Um, that. Yeah. And that kind of came and went in the storytelling. Um, And he was usually a, a heroin addict, kind of like basketball diaries. And, really kind of pulled on the heartstring, really developed that narrative and um, uh, curated this really touching dose of humanity and struggle. So he was conveniently also extremely shy, yet oftentimes outgoing and charismatic on the phone. Some pointed out even getting more and more outgoing and charismatic as he became more famous and was kind of like feeding into this fame So conducting conversations and interviews on the phone, Albert spoke in her character's Southern drawl while preferring to to actually conduct most of his business over email and fax all the way through the 90s. So he didn't actually need to exist for probably about five years. Mm-hmm. In 2000, his harrowing story preceded him and the allegedly autobiographical yet fiction designated book. Sarah was released to critical acclaim and great celebrity fanfare. The documentary was so incredible because Laura apparently taped most of the conversations she had on the phone. So you could listen to these conversations all the way through this, the history of this retelling. So she conceived him as a recluse and celebrities would call and develop really close relationships with him. Winona Ryder, Courtney Love, Lou Reed, A lot of the underground and cool celebrities supporting the new voice in literature and really being moved by his story and fame. As J2 wouldn't personally go to any of the readings, claiming suffering from crippling crowd anxiety, writers, musicians, and celebrities would read for him. 
eventually the pressure was on to get a physical incarnation of this non-existent person. And Laura's husband, who was also in on the hoax, had a sister named Savannah, who was pretty, but also rather ambiguous with really short hair. So Laura paid Savannah $50 to be JT at a reading. And you see in the documentary, this reading and, you know, Savannah like actually has crippling anxiety in front of crowds and was basically had to like climb underneath a table to read like shaking voice, terrified, which of course, you know, the audience just, you know, they ate it up. It was, I mean, it, it was real, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, so clad in a blonde wig, sunglasses on point, like Savannah just nailed the Southern accent and that black brim hat JT became a reality. And alongside him was another alter ego starring Laura herself as a faux British accented speedy speedy (laughs) as JT's manager. I mean, there's a little backstory there, but I'm not going to get into it. Um, (laughs) So this is like, you're just like, wait, this is real. This is totally real. So they actually did start their own trend on these book tours because in the book, the raccoon penis is a sexual amulet used in the South and parts of the Appalachia. So JT talks about this necklace often in Sarah. So they started to actually sell these raccoon penises at the readings and they sold so many of these damn things. And every fan was walking around wearing a JT Leroy penis, you know, obviously like the fans, the cults following, you know, if you wore that, mm-hmm, you know, you mm-hmm. were in on it, you were in on JT's like crew um, in the documentary, you know, everyone's wearing them, including all the celebrities. Like it's actually really hilarious to see, you know, <laughs> to see all these celebrities wearing this raccoon penis, even bookstores were selling them. And there's an article um, that this San Francisco bookstore in the 2000s, whose best selling item for weeks, it wasn't books, it was these raccoon penises. It's crazy. Sorry, it's a raccoon penis bone. Right, right. Right. It's not just like a, like a, oh, like a crinkled <laughs> oh. up old penis. I mean, it's still, it's, you know, there's <laughs> fucking weird. Yeah. It's still fucking weird. And you can still buy them on um, Laura's website. Oh my God. And I think that she, I think people actually made them like cast in gold and silver. I think that she wears like a gold one um, in the, in the documentary. So Laura as Leroy went on to publish another book of short stories in 2001 that became The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, which became a movie by Aja. Is it Aja? Yeah, I always thought it was Asia, and then I heard someone call her Aja yeah. recently, it's and like I was Asia. like, okay, okay, I get it now. Argento in 2004. Um, and in the documentary, I saw the filming and I was like, God, I would never want to watch that. No, it, dude, we watched it after we watched the documentary and I had to keep leaving the room. Mm. It was just too much. It seems a lot. Yeah. Um, I do think that the title is super ironic and funny. The heart is deceitful above all things. Oh my gosh, I know. I know. You know, like the irony of it, of course. Of course. In late 2005, successive investigative pieces in New York Magazine and the New York Times actually revealed the truth. At this point, JT was a huge literary celebrity. 
people were shocked and outraged. Their trust tampered. And I think just really disappointed that this was all an act in a con using a tortured profile of a person as a front for their own work, you know, taking advantage of celebrities and loving the fame and fortune without, uh, without being honest. Another part was the trans community was also rightly furious that it shows insensitivity to gender issues and trans appropriation. You know, citing trends in mainstream media at the time, like New York Times bestseller Middlesex and mainstream movie Trans America, in which representations of trans experiences are often not based on the experience of any actual trans people. (sighs) Yeah. So, you know, she still is writing to this day. Um, She writes, I believe she wrote for Deadwood. I do think she's an amazing, talented writer. Um, My friend Gilbert, who I know he listens to this podcast, and I bet you anything he's going to listen to this one. He's her makeup artist. Oh, wow. I still think she's really amazing. And I just love this story so much. So um, it was such a pleasure to actually dig into it and really take the time and to really analyze it from kind of the perspective of the trends that were happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating to me. It's like the, you know, when people say the truth is stranger than fiction right here, I mean, (laughs) it is like, and Kim gave you the very short version of it. You should watch the documentary because it is so wild. Oh my god! I mean, like uh, Billy Corkin. Like, there's like all these really strange, <laughs> yeah, it's strange relationships and experiences. And like, you know, they had they start a band. Like, it's a lot more. I just it, it is it, it is, and it's also it's like, yeah, it's all the icons, like cool actors and musicians of that time that are really heavily wrapped up in this story and like I would love you know I feel like they don't talk to those people enough now and say like well what do you think now you know what I mean because it's well I know Courtney Love is just like I don't care yeah I think Billy Corkin doesn't care I think they just are like oh okay I mean I don't care either you know what I mean Mm -hmm. but I feel like you know Aja Argento made that movie yeah of her book Thought that they were like the most best friends ever. Yeah, uh, she was I, really hurt, and that, and I completely. Yeah, I would be I, too. I would be I too. They were like that. really close, really, yeah. really close, closer than Courtney Love and Billy Corgan. You know. Yeah. Uh, but it's super fascinating. So worth a watch. Actually, the Billy Corgan thing. It they in the documentary they're like in a weird hotel bed together but it's laura it's not even jt and i know apparently Lori confided in in billy about all everything i mean it's I so know. weird it's so weird it's <laughs> so weird it yeah. is like there's more to the story for there's sure. so there's so much more i just yeah i yeah we only watch have a limited it. a limited amount of time yeah here, so watch um, it call us and give us your opinion on it yes it's great so the second one that I'm going to talk about, um, when you think of hipsters 2000s, you might think of really fussy, artisanal, ye old pretentiousness. And when you think of really fussy, artisanal, ye old pretentiousness, you likely think of the Mass Brothers. <laughs> Photos of the bearded duo, folded arms and stern expressions still actually haunt my memories. I mean, you know what they look like, right? Yes, yes. They are 
the epitome of what you expect them to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now, have you ever had Mass Brothers chocolate? I told you, I was telling you when we were talking about this episode that I'd had it once, and I was like, that wasn't very good. You know, mm-hmm. which not, I don't want to spoil the story here, but it turned out I was onto something. It's very interesting. And it's that you so that. expensive. What year do you remember having it? I mean, it was like, this may have been like more like 2010. Is that too long ago? Because, no, no. If they, okay. no, no, not at all. Because that's kind of right when they were really building steam. Yes. So at that time, I was still working at the Urban Outfitters home office in buying. And we had, well, it's still there, a coffee shop in there called Jeroka. And they always have a lot of really high-end snacks. Like if you would like a 6 to $10 chocolate bar, yeah. It is there for you. And that was the first time I saw Mass Brothers. And what really, of course, sold me was the wrapping, right? Which I'm sure going to get yep. into. Uh, and I was like, well, this must be the most exquisite bar. You know, I dropped some absurd amount of money for it, went back to my desk, and I was like, this isn't very good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You expected a lot more out of it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I remember eating it, giving as and getting as gifts. I think there was even a cookbook that one of my sisters got, I feel like. Um, I think that seems familiar to me. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought it was extraordinary and I've never dreamt of actually like eating a bar, you know, needing to run out and get my fix of Mass Brothers. No. Unlike Ritter's Cornflake Bar. Called oh my God. <laughs> Top three chocolate Yum. bars. Yes. Yum. Always yes. the spot. Yeah. We'll run out to get. Yes, definitely. Um, I had no palate for this type of chocolate, Um, but we were told that it was good. We were told that it was premium, you know? So we ate up the the product because it was positioned to hipsters in a way we loved to consume. Authentic, premium, special, you know, a luxury Mm -hmm. hand wrapped in idealized Brooklyn graphic design, sans serif font, and eclectic wallpaper print. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We had to trust these bearded gentlemen to show us the way into pure quality chocolate land that went against the corporate construct. And we trusted that they would deliver this to us so we could consume the superior product at a premium price, smugly and Consciously. <laughs> so let me take it back to the beginning. Mass Brothers chocolates grew out of the trend of the single origin and artisanal food movement, as well as the quintessential, and I quote, Brooklyn maker story. Something that really started in hipsterland aughts for so many products, complemented by two appropriately hipster brothers including some ye old style with extreme bearding. Mass Brothers launched in 2007, which actually is kind of surprising because I thought that it was a little bit earlier than that. But it's 2007, Amanda. So you were three three years in. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it might have been a year or two before that. I know I left mm-hmm. Philly in 2010. So, okay. you know, and I was there for five years. So in that period there – Early, um, so the you were in the early part of the Mass Brothers. Yes, and once again, like it looked so good. And you know, I will tell you, I c- can barely tell if a wine is good or bad. In fact, you could serve me two dollar wine and I wouldn't know. Terrible, right, terrible. Um, but when it comes to chocolate, that is like one thing that I really 
have like a, I would say like a high end palette for like, I love a fancy chocolate. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, you know, when I was a kid, I always ate the special dark because it felt sophisticated. Uh, So I I love, like I have loved fancy chocolate since like I first discovered it in like college. And I was like, Oh, this tastes like, I don't know, like a baker baker's chocolate bar or something from the grocery store, you know? Yeah. Baker's cho- which we've all tried in desperate times. We've all tried <laughs> in desperate times, right? Like maybe. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so Mass Brothers are considered to be the first, and I quote, bean to bar chocolate brand wrapped up in a fully trendy and hipster aesthetic, hitting the trend so poignantly that it really made the brand blow up quite immediately. They were the originals, innovators, disruptors of this industry, the first of the kind which saw replicants based on their success. But over the years, there were some hints that something fishy was going on with the chocolate. Professional chefs and chocolate connoisseurs rated, like Amanda, (laughs) rated these luxury chocolates as some of the worst in class. You know, with a palate and nose to spot the flavor profiles of single origin and handcrafted chocolates, professionals claimed these bars had a flatness, a waxiness, an uncomplexity, much like mass manufactured types. Waxy. That nails it. Just like a baking chocolate bar. (laughs) Waxy. Yeah, exactly. Just a bittery, waxy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just not good. So people who actually knew the difference were just like, this is not, this, like, we really rate, they they would always say that they rated it at the lowest um, in class. By 2015, despite all that, they had expanded incredibly and the consumer loved their brand, even if the product itself was, wasn't considered incredible to a connoisseur. (laughs) We believed it was premium because they told us it was premium. Like we, we, they were supposed to be like the voice of our hipster chocolate generation. You know, they had moved ahead with a grand expansion, opening up a six thousand square foot chocolate factory and shop in LA's downtown arts district, which we know is like one of the most expensive places in Los Angeles. Um, they also opened a London facility and had a sixty five thousand square foot facility in brooklyn's navy yard Jeez, huge they were positioned for massive massive takeover but in the early 2015s there was an article in slate by megan giller titled chocolate experts hate mass brothers detailing the reason why specialty shops won't carry the most infamous craft chocolate brands in the states so she explains that because most Americans were raised on mass-produced milk chocolate, and I would like to add vomit-flavored Hershey's, which we've talked about before, <laughs> Amanda has talked about many times, um, that we don't have the palate to understand the difference between real craft chocolate and mediocre chocolate since classic American chocolate relies on sugar and vanilla for taste than finer types that depend on the cacao and the bean itself. Essentially, we are the prime targets for some chocolate grifting. Giller says, (laughs) and I quote, but now shelves burst with high-end dark chocolate bars. 
It's as though we've been drinking wine coolers for years and suddenly have access to a cellar of Cabernet Sauvignons. So she goes on to report that Mass Brothers chocolates are notorious for being poor quality and rating at the lowest end of the spectrum. She interviewed some serious chocolate critics like Clay Gordon, a Good Food Awards judge and the author of Discover Chocolate, who noted, and I quote, there are defects in every bar and the chocolate is bad. <laughs> That's defects. I want to know about the defects. <laughs> Apparently there's defects. And then writer, chocolate educator, and international chocolate awards judge. Oh gosh, I'm going to, I'm going to just go gonna, for it. Igraini, you. <laughs> I, sounds good to me. Sure. Um, I'm sorry. Igraini, Gran, I don't know. Um, said that she's tried mass bars and they tasted stale or moldy. Oh. Mm-hmm. So later that year in December of 2015, a local writer and independent journalist by the name of Scott Craig at DallasFood.org wrote a rather scathing four-part, extremely comprehensive, esoteric expose on Mass Brothers chocolates in a post called What Lies Beneath the Beards. (laughs) I love the title so much. I know, it's so good. So Craig is known for well-researched and educated takedowns in the chocolate industry. In 2006, he dove into the business practices of NOCA, which was considered to be the most expensive chocolate in the world, selling for almost $2,000 a pound. He fully blew open a a phenomenally corrupt business, proving that the couple behind the operation had from day one systematically lied about the sourcing, origins, and value of virtually all their chocolate, getting their chocolate supplied from mass sources and marking their product up over 6,000%. The media coverage and bad buzz were enough to muddy the waters, and Noka closed in 2011. So Craig turned his pen almost 10 years later onto the Mass Brothers in a strikingly similar fashion. So there's long been skepticism at the brothers' claim that they've always, without exception, produced bean-to-bar chocolate. The term, and I quote, bean to bar, is generally understood to mean that the cacao beans are processed in-house. The story got picked up by nearly everyone and it went viral overnight. New York Times did their own investigation and it looks like there was some real smoke and mirrors as well as some manipulations of the truth as it comes out that industrial chocolate companies like French luxury chocolate su- supplier, and I'm not sure how this is pronounced, Valrana. I think you're right. And they're good. I've had those. It is a luxury, mm-hmm. uh, but it is a chocolate supplier. And they were supplying to Mass Brothers for years, mainly at the beginning, like when you ate it, Amanda. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were essentially just melting them down with some other ingredients making them into mass molds and slapping their label, claiming to be all handmade, not being to bar and not worth the $8 price tag. Totally. And I would guess that they were adding a lot of like fillers to sort of stretch that chocolate. And that's why it was like weird and waxy. Weird. Well, they apparently, I mean, there is not as much transparency as to when they stopped using this mass supplied chocolate, they claim that they now, or they did in, in the, the near the end, do bean to bar, 
mm-hmm. but we don't really know. And it doesn't actually matter because no matter what, they are they li- they lied. They lied yeah, for years. Yeah, totally. And essentially, don't fuck with hipsters. When you slap an authentic and superior title on a product, it better damn well be just that. And it just wasn't. So their business took a nosedive. I mean, if the chocolate was actually good, that would have been one thing. But mediocre, and with this bullshit circling around it, the hipsters actually wouldn't touch it. Uh, The L.A. spot shut down less than a year after they opened in 2017. Their London facility was also closed down quietly as well. And their Brooklyn Navy Yard epicenter also looks to be completely shut down. So the Gothamist claims um, they were basically run out of town by hipsters due to Mm -hmm. divine artisanal chocolate. They report that sales at partner shops in Brooklyn right around that 2015 time all slashed substantially after the articles came out with 17 to 60% decrease in sales on the chocolate with consumers losing trust, interest, faith in the brand and likely their own tastes. Yeah. You know? it's yeah. To a, a hipster to be like, no, this is actually, you've been eating bad chocolate all along. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so they have made multiple efforts to come back and they now have a company named Mast makers of the organic pantry and they make like organic flour and of course organic chocolate they've rebranded just slightly and it looks like they've moved away from brooklyn completely and are now upstate in new york but i feel like this name mast has just been totally sullied i mean wouldn't you recommend just changing the whole name altogether if you were going to yeah, go into I, a mean, new I don't even know what they're thinking because i would never buy anything from them at this no. point Right? No. Yeah. I think it's it's pretty tainted. Like yeah. they definitely knew how to grow a business and market it and really kind of understand the trends. Mm-hmm. No, the packaging and whatnot was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It was really amazing. And then yeah. I don't I don't think that they could put their name on anything. Yeah. No one will no. trust it. I don't know what they're thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know. Kim and I have been talking a lot about the hipster essentials that kind of come up over and over again, you know, like scarves and skinny jeans, black hair dye, glasses. Every every episode, these have come up in one way or another, whether we're trying to describe someone or we're just like doing a deep dive into the things hipsters like. But you have to admit that irony is the most essential accessory for every hipster. I mean, we've used the term irony probably 50 times so far today, right? (laughs) It just keeps coming back. And, you know, I just want to call out that the hipsters are so obsessed with authenticity, yet they're also approaching life with irony. And shouldn't those two things be opposites? I think it's just something to think about as we talk, right? People felt really grifted by Mast because they were not, in fact, authentic, right? Uh, Seems kind of ironic to me, actually, right? right? Uh, Same thing with JT Leroy. You know, grifted them because she was this, like, faux intense authenticity that was, in fact, all fictional. Once again, seems pretty ironic. You know, I rarely haul out the dictionary for use here at the department because who (laughs) wants to hear me? read a definition. And I totally feel like everybody went to school with that kid who had to get up and give a book report and they would be like, Webster's defines blank as blah, 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 you know. But 
I think there's a lot of confusion out there about like what irony means, and it's often misused. And irony is, quote, a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and therefore is often amusing as a result. Do you remember in Reality Bites that um, uh, oh, what's, uh, what's, what's her name? Ronona Ryder is asked, oh, define irony. I always <laughs> thought it was really funny because back then I think irony was like it, it existed but not to a super high degree. Well, and it was like a word that people would throw around. I was thinking about how we used to be like, it's just so random. Isn't that yeah. random? That is random. And then it turned into, it's just ironic, you know, like as the aughts approach. Mm-hmm. And I, okay, well, to really understand why the hipster uh, version of irony sort of muddled everything, you have to truly understand the meaning of irony. And I think going back to the 90s, going back to Reality Bites, that era, I think that it all starts with Alanis Morissette's mm-hmm. Ironic, oh, a song that is ironically <laughs> not very yeah. ironic, right? Like, like not, not understanding what the word irony is, what, what the, what the word that Winona Ryder is re- expected to define in an interview. It, yeah, right. And I think we, that's when we all start learning about irony. And yet nobody really knew what it meant, which is pretty ironic. So I thought we would just break down the lyrics to ironic because everyone knows them. And it can kind I can kind of demonstrate in a few ways in which <laughs> these are not irony, but how they would be irony, right? So it's a black fly in your Chardonnay. Well, that's this is certainly gross. annoying and disgusting, but that would only be ironic aka deliberately contrary to what one expects, if that Chardonnay was actually some sort of special insect-repelling wine. Because then it wouldn't be doing what you expect. But we don't expect flies to not be drawn to Chardonnay. In fact, it makes sense to me because it's kind of sweet and we, you know. Uh, So not ironic, just inconvenient. A traffic jam when you're already late. I mean, that's just stressful, right? Mm -hmm. Why would running late create the expectation that there would not be any traffic? You know, if you've lived in LA, you would actually be kicking yourself because of course there's traffic. There's no irony there at all. This is just how life is sometimes. Not ironic. Right. A no smoking sign on your cigarette break. Once again, is that no smoking sign unexpected? Because if you're on your cigarette break, I'm assuming it's from your work and you're smoking in the same place every day. Why would that sign be surprising unless you were like, I don't know, you worked at a hospital or an airport and there was one of those like self-contained smoking lounges and you went in there and then there was a sign that said no smoking. That how, would be ironic. details you're getting with the story. <laughs> <laughs> then it would be ironic, but otherwise it's not. Um, mm-hmm. It's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. I mean, I could do this all day. That yeah. is not ironic. That is just annoying. This song should be actually called Life is Full of Annoyances. Yes. yes. It should not be called ironic, right? You can't always get what you want. Yes, exactly. Sometimes things just suck. Would also yeah. be a great, oh, great bad name. Day. Yeah, just exactly. Bad exactly. Um and I kind of wonder if Alana somewhat influenced the aughts hipster obsession with irony. 
but like this totally misinformed version of irony. Like when people say like they were, oh, they were ironically watching the OC. Well, what's ironic about that? Because it's maybe even sad that someone would waste their time consuming culture that they don't really like. Or maybe it's even sadder that someone would be afraid of being truthful about what they like for fear of being uncool. Being uncool. Put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that. This week, I became really obsessed. I read so many articles. I was trying to frame up how I'd be talking about irony. And I became really obsessed with trying to figure out where this hipster version of irony that, you know, really wasn't that ironic began. Because we know that it is very confusing that it allowed hipsters to engage in blatant racism, classism, and misogyny under the guise of irony. And, you know, using the Alanis Morissette measuring stick of irony... (laughs) I suppose the irony is that you are supposed to assume that those behaviors are contrary to the actual nature of the person engaging them because they're somehow better than that. And therefore, that's amusing. But we know that, in fact, neither of those were true. If you are being ironically racist, you're just racist. If you're being if you're ironically abusing women, yeah. you're just abusing women, right? I almost feel like we need to come up with a new word. And <laughs> no, it because it was not ironic, right? And I, and, and I don't even know what the word would be. It's like it was like it's like a, an offshoot of irony, like f- like irony or something, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, phorony. I don't know. Fo-rony. And it's like Fo-rony. it's like. This irony, what this fake irony, this phyrony is doing <laughs> is really just everyone is behaving incredibly inauthentically, which is ironic because allegedly the hipsters value authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's ironic. That's the most ironic thing we've discussed so far, right? Yeah. So in t- 2012, Christy Wample wrote an opinion column for the New York Times, for the New York Times called How to Live Without Irony. And this single column launched a flurry of irate, mostly defensive think pieces across the internet. And I know that- Mostly men or women did both. It was both. I know because I've read all of them in the last (laughs) week, okay? And- I will say they all start the same exact way, Cam. It's like, you know, I might not describe myself as a hipster, but other people would because I wear glasses and skinny jeans and I love Neutral Milk Hotel Jeez, and I ride yeah, a fixed gear. Yeah, exactly. Look in the mirror. Yeah, I fucking hate that. That is a little bit ironic to me, right? It is. It, it, and, and the fact that every single one starts like that. Uh, like, I would never call myself a hipster. Jesus, right, get over yourself. Right. But here I am writing an essay, freaking out about someone talking about hipsters living yeah. with irony and ruining the world. Because it, because I associate with it. Because I am one. I know. I hate it. It's like there was still that weird like, oh, I'm not a hipster. You are kind of vibe. But I found – you know how like if you look up a recipe online – there's like 12 paragraphs about like the life story of why the person made this, followed this recipe or yes, something. so long. I always get And over then it. you get to the ingredients and you're like, yes. thank fucking God. That's how I felt these articles were. You just have to scroll through the first three mm-hmm. to five paragraphs about how this person <laughs> wouldn't describe themselves as a hipster, but someone else would. And then you could get to the meat of it. Like that's how many of these articles I've read this week, Kim. 
And I will say, I can see why some people were really upset about Wampel's essay because there are some statements in it that are patently untrue. For example, mm. she claimed that both the 90s and Gen X were completely irony-free. Oh, oh uh, no. By the way, she's Gen X. Just, just going to say that. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that everything the Gen Xers did was primarily steeped in apathy and depression. That's like that slacker character. Oh, she brought it up multiple times. Oh, okay. okay. And then, of course, every essay that was like contradicting her, you know, fighting with her basically also brought that up. And I would argue with that statement in like a million ways, not least of all, that after 9-11, everyone declared that irony had died once and for all. Oh, yes, that's right. For example, on September 18th, 2001, Graydon Carter, the editor of Vanity Fair, declared, I think it's the end of the age of irony. (laughs) And in fact, there is an entire Atlantic article about all the different people who declared that irony was over in the wake of 9-11. If Gen X was so sincerely disconnected and despaired and didn't know what irony was, who was engaging in all of this irony that was supposedly ending. You and I already know Gen X is hella irony. Yeah. She even, she like sells herself out multiple times in this mm-hmm. essay. She cites her inability to give a quote, sincere gift. Instead, she was always opting for ironic gifts. And well, you know why? Because Gen X was like the originator of the ironic gift. Mm-hmm. That's basically how Urban Outfitters became a place in the 90s where cool people bought tchotchkes and books for one another, right? Yeah. The white elephant is... Exactly, exactly. There you go. And these, like, ironic, quirky, kitschy gift shops popped up everywhere across the country. We had multiple in Portland by the early aughts. You still don't believe that Gen X was ironic? Well, I would highly recommend that you read Generation X, the Douglas Copeland book that defined Mm -hmm. a generation. It is all about irony. It is written with so much irony mm-hmm. and so much like reverence for kitsch. I love this book. I reread it last summer. It holds up. I'll tell you that. Have you ever read it? I think I wrote read it a long time ago. I was obsessed with it in high school for some reason. <laughs> you have to read it. It's a it's a fast read. So in 2017 Vanity Fair declared, quote, irony and a keen sense of dread are what make Generation X the last great hope. Jeez. So, okay. I love when when articles say the last great hope for a generation. Oh, gosh. I got to tell you, every article that I read this week to prepare for this episode was making these like just bold, hyperbolic statements. It was like so ridiculous. Um. And But this is when, like, I'm starting to piece all this together and I'm really thinking it through. And that's where I started to see that Gen X is really 100% responsible for sort of seeding that hipster and millennial irony. Because let's look at the Gen Xers that had a lot of influence on the hipster culture. We had Elliot Smith, Kathleen Hanna and the rest of Bikini Kill, Wes Anderson, all of the founders of Vice, Dove Charney. Terry Richardson, David Foster Wallace, Winona Ryder, Drew Barrymore. I could go on and on. In fact, most of the like famous hipsters around 2000 to 2004 were actually Gen Xers because otherwise they'd be 
almost too young to have a career doing anything. You know what I mean? These people set the tone for what was cool in the 90s and the aughts, and it was their use of irony, even well before the aughts, that set the tone for hipster irony. I was thinking of all the early 90s stuff, like singles, singles, Seinfeld, Reality Bites, just about any MTV programming. I was even thinking of Nirvana songs, like Smells Like Teen Spirit said, load up your guns, bring your friends, it's fun to lose and to Uh pretend. I mean, that is... So ironic, you know, or trying to be. Essentially, the hipster culture was created and driven by the Gen Xers. And like some of the the responses to Wample's essay cited that right away. And others were just like, no, like the hipsters are were a millennial movement. And I would say, not really until maybe we get to 2010 or the late aughts, because a lot of the millennials were still teenagers, you know, or very young adults. And while they may have been participating in the culture, they were definitely no, not, not shaping it. I felt like I looked up to people who were like about 10 years older than us to as the cool ones. All we could do is look at magazines also. Like what were we going to influence? Exactly. Exactly. It, it was the culture was driven by Gen Xers. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to Wample's highly inflammatory essay. She blames the millennials for irony, which we now know is we all know is not true. <laughs> and she says that this uh, this I was starting to get upset reading this article. She says that millennials only know how to engage with the world through scoffing oh. and mockery. I mean, she just oh. is like, oh, I I shouldn't I already have mentioned you know that she is a Gen Xer. Just going to say that again. And I feel like she's having. That like kids these days, it was like the precursor yeah. for the millennials kill everything. Like, mm-hmm. is sounds like this that negative? Yeah, is this the first the millennials kill everything article? Possibly. Kinda. Um, she goes on to basically imply that irony literally destroys societies and leads to dictators. Oh, she basically was like. The only humans that aren't living in a state of irony right now are children, elderly people, and I, I guess Gen Xers. I'm not really sure. Like, the logic is all over the place. And this all seems very excessive to me, but mm-hmm. I think we've also seen how irony or this faux irony, this firony, can obscure some pretty bad behavior. It, it kind of like self-gaslights victims and it perpetuates stereotypes and abuse. Like it's not it's not good. But she does hit some other points squarely in the heart. Not that many, but a few that really stuck with me. She said, quote, as a function of fear and preemptive shame, ironic living bespeaks cultural numbness, resignation, and defeat. If life has become merely a clutter of kitsch objects, an endless series of sarcastic jokes and pop references, a competition to see who can care the least, or at a minimum, a performance of such a competition, it seems we've made a collective misstep. And yeah, I agree with all of that. But once again, there wasn't some like switch that flipped in 2000 and suddenly everybody was ironic and insincere. That was going on for a long time, you know? Mm -hmm. It was going on through the 90s. And I do believe that most of this, like, irony was intentionally designed 
to obscure someone's real truth, right? Whether it was just that they were nervous about not being cool or that they're like a raging misogynist. Yeah. There's a whole spectrum. It was, I think, it, it, yeah, definitely, it definitely covered up self-consciousness because if you were ironic, they, you know, and you use it as a form of comedy, it, it meant that you were clever. Yeah, exactly. And so you couldn't lose, basically. Mm-hmm. It did seem as if no one was allowed to truly like anything or at least they couldn't publicly admit that they liked something or believed in something lest they be rejected. I mean, I remember people who clearly were Christian being fake Christian to see how it would like roll, Wait, you know, how it would go. Really? Yeah, yeah. There were there were Weird. multiple people that I remember in Portland of that era who would be like, we'd be out and suddenly they would start talking about God. And then they'd be like, no, I mean, I mean I'm kidding. And you'd be like, I don't, I think, I think so-and-so is like actually like religious, you know, like note to self. Huh. Anyway, I mean, isn't that sad? That's sad. Yeah, that is sad. It's because you, you can't be your true self or, you know, oh, or like you said, a guilty pleasure, you know, like, like get rid of stupid guilty pleasures. Ugh. Also, imagine your like spiritual beliefs being a guilty pleasure. Yes. But yeah, get rid of guilty exactly. pleasure. I hate that. Okay, so I was trying to do an example here and I had to talk about fedoras. So because fedoras are hilarious, right? <laughs> so we can say in 2021 that fedoras are not cool, right? We've all pretty much agreed mm-hmm. on that except for the people who are still wearing them. But if you or I started wearing a fedora, ironically, to mock the ostensibly uncool act of wearing a fedora, like it's you, Kim, you're wearing one right now, you'd still be wearing a fedora. You know what I mean? And isn't it really true that on some level, Kim, while you're wearing that fedora, that you would feel a little bit that it kind of is a good look for you because – even if you thought it was hilarious to wear a fedora, you wouldn't wear it if you thought it made you look bad, right? So yeah. in there somewhere in your brain, it's just a little bit of love for that fedora. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. There's a little just bit a little of bit something. There. Okay. What if in 10 years, Gen Zers started wearing fedoras as an ironic play on you currently wearing that fedora? If – they are ironically wearing something that you ironically wore. Do two ironies make a sincerity? <laughs> like, do they, is it like a double negative of irony? Right. right. Like, yeah, they like cross each yeah, other out. It's like the whole thing is so silly. And ultimately, irony is just a really great security blanket. For one, you never have to worry about doing something uncool because, hey, you're just doing it ironically. And two, if the other person judges your taste harshly, well, the joke's on them because they just don't get it. So a feeling of superiority and sort of like protection either way. I mean, and also during this time, we talked all about how self-consciousness was like so pervasive. Oh, my God. Amongst everyone. Irony is the perfect disguise for your self-consciousness. I think of all the people who were ironically doing this thing or that thing, and now I wonder if they all just really loved it and were afraid to admit it. Like, hindsight (laughs) is so 2020, you know? Uh Um, The real tragedy of irony is that it destroys sincerity and the feeling of genuine, authentic human interactions. Once again, here is a whole group of people who allegedly value authenticity more than anything else. They 
are living the most authentic life while the mainstream culture is not, yet nobody is being sincere and authentic about anything because Mm -hmm. irony is the exact opposite of authenticity. Like it's just, where's the disconnect here, guys, (laughs) you know? Yeah. As a reaction, as Kim mentioned, as a reaction to the irony of the aughts and really the 90s too, let's not forget this. We Irony was existing well before the aughts. A new movement was born called the New Sincerity. And David Foster Wallace, he's a Gen Xer, was a huge proponent of it. And he actually said, people love to cite this quote, man, Kim, this mm-hmm. came up in 80% of the articles I've read this week. I practically have it memorized. He said... The next real literary rebels in this country might well emerge as some weird bunch of anti-rebels who dare somehow to back away from ironic watching. The new rebels might be artists willing to risk the yawn, the rolled eyes, the cool smile, the nudged ribs, the oh, how banal, to risk accusations of sentimentality, melodrama, of over-credulity, of softness. And yeah, basically it's about like being vulnerable, which is an authentic state versus not being attached to anything, which is an inauthentic state, right? Well, I think also what's really interesting about about the new sincerity is it's all about, um, you know, uh, rebelling from the ironic and embracing like human connection, and I think that's one of the issues that happened in the hipsters is that there was a lack of like human connection sometimes. I think so. And I think so. I would date people who didn't know a thing about me, Kim. We'd have like a year long yeah. relationship. Because of the like, yeah, exactly. Because it was like such a narcissistic situation. And I mean, I feel like I didn't, I definitely had some close friends but there was just so many people that just floated about and I, I didn't really know much about them or there wasn't a closeness. There wasn't a, an actual community of people. No. That like, no, that you could rely on. It was like you know? party friends. You didn't know it then, friends. but you look back and mm-hmm. you see it very clearly. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people are looking for that connection now for, because we just, didn't have it for, for so sure. Long. And I do think, you know, you mentioned some of the artists who were really part of that new uh new sincerity movement, like Wes Anderson, Cat Power, Bell and Sebastian, Neutral Milk Hotel, you know, all of these people really touched so many mm-hmm. people, but you almost kind of had to be embarrassed about how much you loved them. You know what I mean? Uh, and people would make fun of it sort of like, oh, I mean, Wes Anderson's fine, but, you know, it's like kind of dumb or whatever, you know, or mm-hmm. or like I remember I loved Cat Power so much. I still do. I loved Bill Callahan. Back then he was called Smog. You know, I loved yes. – I loved no, – And then remember when he was – Yes, yes. And I – I loved them. I listened to their records nonstop. I know every word to every Bell and Sebastian song. Yet I I would always have to play it off as like I knew it was kind of silly and like sensey to listen to all that. And like I didn't – that's not really who I was. But I would be at home alone like sobbing to this music. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? 
too. And I feel like that was that's probably one of the points and one of the reasons why it, it resonated so much with us is because we just lacked so much human compassion and, and, and camaraderie and community and just like emotionality from the people around us that we had to find it in these artists. And it was kind of the the one touchstone to to this like sincere authenticity uh, that just didn't exist totally. in this society. Totally. And you know, I moved to Portland because, you know, my boyfriend had died. I now had a kid and I like I was a surprise single parent and my life had fallen apart and would have would have been great for me at that point is to fall into a circle of friends that wanted to talk about things. That is absolutely not what happened. And so for a good 10, 15 years, I just jammed those feelings deep inside me and never talked about them ever. Because if it ever came up, people would make jokes about it. Just ironically, just ironic jokes. You know, and I think, think of all the people who experienced all kinds of trauma and grief in the aughts who never got to talk about it. And then talk about how everyone was drinking so much. There's a connection there. I mean, that's like a coping mechanism. For sure. Absolutely. For sure. I mean, I definitely felt like a lot of the people that I knew in the aughts, it was, there was, there was a very, there was a disconnect from the closeness and a lot of times it was it was just like a strange clicky situation where like oh they would be friends with you because you brought this or you were this like but it wasn't a it wasn't a comfortable connection it wasn't a friendly connection it was just like it was all visceral mm-hmm. and i i don't know a lot of people from that time period i was still. just like, I'm gonna not still say the same thing i have a couple friends from that time period but but not very many you know i mean there are still acquaintances but like i have a couple of close friends from them but that's about it and everything was just so fleeting i don't even know where a lot of these yeah. people are now you Me know it was, yeah it was fleeting and you wanted to be a part of it and you wanted so hard to be a part of this community but the community was just all based on kind of like narcissism and and selfishness uh, of of the individual or of like mini cliques mm-hmm. that it was impossible to ever have something that was really poignant. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I so think that's why we appreciated these, these mm-hmm. more sincere artists, oh right? My God. Just like we, we needed, needed it. it. And if like a new cat power album would come out and just, I would just learn all of the lyrics. I would cry. Just like you said, all of it, Bell and Sebastian. I loved all of that really comforting, weepy, um, emotional music. It was, it was everything. And I would just listen to it over and over and over and over again. And just like feel, feel something. Totally. You know? Totally. And then I would go to work where we would be listening to like LCD sound system, which is the complete opposite, like just irony dance music, right? And other stuff like that. And it, I don't know, it was like a sharp contrast in my life for sure. Well, it wouldn't surprise you to hear that Christy Wample, the person who wrote this like really inflammatory essay, also thought that there was no way that all of these artists, musicians, directors, writers, and their art could ever dismantle the, what she called, deep irony and she capitalized the d and the i there of the hipsters Mm. like the irony was just too deep we were never going to dig our way out of it she gets so dark she says quote 
what will future generations make of this rampant sarcasm and unapologetic cultivation of silliness? Will we ever be satisfied to leave an archive filled with video clips of people doing stupid things? Is an ironic legacy, is an ironic legacy even a legacy at all? I mean, that is like hmm. bummer town USA. But once again, I feel like she's yeah, like, man. these these millennials, <laughs> they're messing everything up. Man, when I was your age, you know, like that's what she's doing. And she's like, she's like on the cusp of millennials. She's, she's just being mean. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Maybe she wasn't allowed into the That's clicks, what I'm wondering. That's you know? what I'm wondering. I'm so conflicted by this essay because on one hand, it just so – it's just so flagrantly anti-millennial and somewhat delusional about the origins origins of irony. I can see why there were so many retaliatory essays. Like clearly everyone was like, I must open my laptop and write six paragraphs about how I'm not a hipster, but some people might think I am, and then really, really flame her on this. <laughs> but it does, it does contain like there are nuggets that in this essay that are very helpful and hopeful and I I do walk away with them feeling like it's giving me something to think about. She says, moving away from the ironic involves saying what you mean, meaning what you say, and considering seriousness and forthrightness as expressive possibilities despite the inherent risks. It means undertaking the cultivation of sincerity humility, and self-effacement, and demoting the frivolous and the kitschy on our collective scale of values. It might also consist of an honest self-inventory. Mm. And I will yeah. say, there was something about this like ironic, insincere culture that made me think so much of being a teenager, even as I was an adult, right? It reminded me of the way teenagers talk to one another about feelings, which is that they don't, right? It's like, oh, I don't really like him, you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. But like yeah, you're at yeah. home all night obsessively wishing this guy would talk to you at school, you know, like that kind of thing. And it was sort of like the adult version of that. So in many ways, it was actually like very like regressive emotionally, I would say. Uh, it kind of stunted people's growth, which you and I've talked about on the other episodes that we feel like some of these people were just stuck and they might still be, you know? Yeah, exactly. She does ask the reader to ask themselves these questions. And some of these I am really annoyed by. <laughs> Others I'm like, okay, fine. She says, do you surround yourself with things you really like or things you only like because they are absurd? And I would say there, like, it's okay to, to honestly and authentically like absurd things and recognize that they're absurd and yeah. still love them. Absolutely, says the woman with the ever-growing faux fruit Exactly, collection. exactly. Faux fruit is ridiculous, yeah. but I, I love it. I have loved it since I was a kid. I mm -hmm. find it very interesting. It's fun to do art projects with. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. You do actually do genuinely love it, but you also think it's kitschy and kitsch and fun aren't the same thing as being ironic. I know. I think she keeps confusing kitsch with irony. And I would say no, like recognizing the silliness of something and and loving it because of that is a very honest feeling, you know? Kitsch is, is a stylistic, yes. aesthetic of thing. Of course. It's not ironic. I mean, unless you are only liking 
um, kitsch because of the irony, but you actually don't like Which it or something. It's like, if that's the case, then I really want you to sit down and like do some reflection because that's insane. <laughs> yeah. Don't like anything that you don't actually like. You know? Yeah. Uh, she also said, yeah. listen to your your own speech. Ask yourself, do I communicate primarily through inside jokes and pop culture references? And that one really annoyed me because I think an inside joke with a friend is one of life's simplest pleasures. <laughs> you know what I mean? It is. I, this, see, as you read some of this, you're like, do you just like not have any friends? Yeah, you're, you don't sound like a very fun person. Because inside jokes are like a way you build relationships. And pop culture references are super fun because that's like – it's an affirmation of your uh, joint understanding of the world. This is how you connect with people. Those Mm -hmm. pop culture references are like the gateway to building a real relationship. That's where it starts. And who doesn't love – Pop culture. Yeah, trivia. I know. See, so the, some of the stuff I like, I hate. I hate so much. Mm-hmm. If we're not allowed to have inside jokes and pop culture references, are we just sitting around talking about our feelings all the time? Because that's a little excessive oh, too, right? Yeah. It's exhausting. <laughs> we need to have fun sometimes. Okay, next is do I feign indifference? Now, I find that very problematic. Uh, it goes back to that like high school idea of like, do you like that guy? No, I think he's gross. I don't care about him. He's a nerd. Then you're at home like sobbing because he hasn't asked you to homecoming. It's just like self-consciousness. Yes, I think that's a big part of it. I <clears throat> like a few years ago, I got to chaperone a prom with all my like hipster <gasps> friends. Oh, it was really fun. We got God. all dolled up. One of my friends, Alana, who's actually the one who sent you all of the hipster pictures. She is a high school teacher. Amazing. And so she asked us to sh- – to chaperone their prom and it was so fun and funny because when you're no longer a teenager you get to see how teenagers are so worried all the time of being embarrassed (laughs) and so like no one would dance at the prom literally no one would dance at the prom because they were afraid of embarrassing themselves um it was so funny and and sad and i was like i remember this feeling you know (laughs) you think that all eyes are on you you're gonna yeah people are gonna be making fun of you forever and ever yes so this is a good one right i i appreciate do i feign indifference i also feel like there are people who literally just are indifferent and that is their genuine state of mind okay Mm -hmm. um Next yeah. is what parts of your wardrobe could be described as costume-like, which for me would be everything I own. She also says derivative or reminiscent of some specific style archetype. The secretary, the hobo, that- the hobo. I don't know what who's doing that. Fashion I know, I know. Style. The flapper. How many times have we done like 1920s holiday at different jobs? I know. Exactly. Um, yourself as a child. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, I think. Wait, the hobo. I mean, well, she shouldn't even be using that term. I know this is like 2012, but come on. Exactly, but yeah, exactly. The hobo. In other words, do your clothes refer to something else or only to themselves? Do you attempt to look intentionally nerdy, awkward, or ugly? In other words, is your style an anti-style? And I would just say – This person is – she's clearly not a hipster. She's super boring. Well, I have to tell you it's hard for me to say if she is or not because there were not five paragraphs in the beginning where she said, listen, I don't consider myself a hipster, but I do use and a Chemex to make coffee. I know. I know. Right. 
But I do make use a Chemex to make coffee. <laughs> so I feel like she is barking up the wrong tree in a lot of ways here. Yeah. And I I mean, yeah, I I think that maybe some hipsters have done her wrong in the past. She had a bad hipster boyfriend. I have yeah. had ha- bad hipster boyfriends, and I would have written this for sure. You know what I mean? And I really, I don't think, you know, asking yourself, is your style anti-style? I don't think that anyone would ever say that their style is anti-style. It's just their style. Well, style. I mean, th- that whole paragraph that I read you is someone who is not actively engaged in their own personal style. That's what I would say. Because I've talked to people like that before who are like, all you hipsters care about is style. Well, you know what? I reject that, and I'm buying these khakis at Ross because I don't care. Okay. I'm above yeah, that, that is, you know? Sure. That's like Normcore Yeah, exactly. Now. Well, a lot of those guys moved into Normcore or whatever, and, you know, there were some people who, once again, they would write this essay, and they would say, you know, I don't consider myself a hipster, but people say that because I, you know, have two iPods that I am or something. I don't know. Those people are also hipsters, but they're the ones who are like – you know, I'm not like all into like fashion the way these hipsters are. It's so shallow. That's how I, that's why I don't think I'm a a hipster because I care about things. Dot, dot, dot. I'm also a barista, you know, like it's just like, (laughs) (laughs) I, it always comes back to, or I have 10,000 vinyl records. You know, exactly. uh, sorry, I have, I have a whole where it's like, room. you know, I'd love to talk to you about how I'm not a hipster, but I have to go because I'm DJing at that dive bar in an hour. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, it's just right. like, this makes me assume that this writer is not a hipster, but I also have seen this kind of argument about like being too much of a peacock, too stylish, wearing too much vintage, doing t- your hair too much, all of these things thrown back as like, that's because you're a fucking hipster. You're shallow yeah. and, and you know, vapid and all you care about is how you look. And, you know, you and I obviously have worked in fashion our whole adult lives. And we would argue otherwise that there's actually a lot of intention there. So this was a 2012 Yeah, it article. sounds like it's like and 2002. Then, it was – I know. Cause by Well, by then it, it seems like, you know, hipster was kind of getting into the mainstream. So I feel like it really touched – a lot of people. Yeah, I think it did. And I think, I mean, I do remember in the oddies, that was when it was like extra embarrassing to be a hipster. Conversely, I would see people who, I'm going to tell you, Kim, were not hipsters calling themselves hipsters because they were drinking a craft beer or something. Like I remember seriously (laughs) sitting at a table at a table in a bar with some people who, Kim, they were not hipsters, okay? And they were like, well, look at us. We're just a table full of hipsters. Blah, blah, blah. You're just And I was like embarrassed because I was like, you know what? I know that I'm a hipster. I am literally a professional hipster who has made a career out of being a hipster. Totally, you know, my – First boyfriend, Brad, saw the future, and I really did have a career exactly. as a hipster. And I'm sitting here at a table with people who, as a professional hipster, in, in my very informed professional hipster opinion, are not hipsters, 
calling themselves hipsters, <laughs> what does it even mean anymore? And suddenly, like you're just like embarrassed. Every person who lived in Portland thought they were a hipster and would call themselves that because oh. they drank like craft beer, maybe had a kombucha once in a while, but then would come to the bar in like you know a, a zip up fleece and some Nike running shoes, and you'd be like, you're not a hipster. Okay, have you ever dyed no. your hair black or bleached it out? Do you know what Neutral Milk Hotel Probably is? not. Yeah, it's usually like, I think a, a hipster really, really is defined if they actually understand music. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of where the foundation is, is the music. And then it, then it goes I do there. think that like, and we're going to talk about music in an upcoming episode. I do think music was like the hub of the hipster culture because you might yeah. be a filmmaker or a writer or a painter – but music still defined a lot of your like headspace, I would say. And everybody went to shows, yeah. you know, being in a band was like the ultimate thing. Uh, it's kind of like I felt like I listened to music every waking hour of my life. It was important. Very important. To be educated. Yes. You read all of the right the right things. You listened to all the music. You went to the shows. It was just – it was part of – of your identity was to understand and be really fluent in band speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally, totally. Uh, and I think that that was one of the things that really separated the hipsters from like the mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. So I also, you know, I know that hipsters can be kind of snotty about that kind of stuff. I am too. It doesn't mean that like mm-hmm. I think my taste in music is better than anybody else's, but yeah it's all personal right it's very subjective but I would talk to people who were self-proclaimed hipsters and they didn't know any of the like musical touch points of that scene and I would be like I don't think you are you're not a hipster yeah, you're not and that's okay you have to you have to understand the music yeah to be honest exactly. you're probably lucking out right now that you are not sucked into this toxic exactly. gaslighty culture <laughs> please Lonely. please yeah, you know what exactly just grab your backpack because it's, backpacks aren't in yet and just run. Just run away from us and never come back. Go to cargo pants in your back. Go to a nice bar right now. Get out of this place. Get a, get a nice a nice Cosmo. Yes, exactly, exactly. And you know what? You're you know what's going to happen? You're going to marry someone with a good career and you guys are going to buy a house and you're going to yep. have kids and like nice furniture and like Maybe someone to come and clean your house once a week. If you stick around with us, you're going to be renting oh. forever. Okay, you'll be dragged out. You're going to still be working at that coffee <laughs> yes, shop. Yes, still, still be working at that video yeah. store. Now. <laughs> well, not the video store because they're gone. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's like just get out of here. This is the worst thing that could happen to you. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and don't worry. In about five years, good music will be all mainstream. So I know. Isn't that crazy? That's see, we have to do an episode about music because Dustin and I talk about that all the time. How yes. mainstream music, like if you were a hipster in the aughts, the most embarrassing thing you could do is get caught listening to mainstream music unless it was Ryan Adams. Like we said, there was an exception yeah. for him. And actually, Justin Timberlake was actually oh. in my friend group was super acceptable. Oh yeah, totally. Mine too. I went to I remember specifically going to this house party, like you did, with my friend Alana. And I also remember that I was wearing a cheerleading uniform to this party. 
and we it was kind of lame and we went into the living room and we just kept playing the same Justin Timberlake song over and over yeah. again and dancing and it turned into a real dance party. Amazing. <laughs> like we listened we listened to, you know, like the Rock Your Body song like 10 yeah. times in a row and just kept dancing and then everybody showed up dancing and then we listened to other songs. <laughs> You know, originally when it came out, it was like, ew, gross. But, you know, one of the people in our group worked at the record store. You know, of course, mm-hmm, you have that one mm-hmm. that one friend that understands the music really well. And she was like, oh, no, everyone says this album is amazing. And that became acceptable then for the entire crew to love this album and listen to it constantly. Well, and that's also how it worked. Because yes. I heard that album outside of that bubble and I was like, huh. That's pretty good, but you know, it wasn't that guy on the Disney like on yeah. the Mouseketeer or something? Uh, <laughs> Isn't Danny Brittany? Yeah, we can't listen to him. And then you know, it of course, then someone decreed that it was socially acceptable, and then we all love JT. Um, I wonder how that became so socially acceptable. I think it's just because you know there was also this thing idea that like hipsters didn't dance. You know, oh my god, so much dancing. It's no so dancing much- at the shows. But we had dance right, parties. Right, right. And you cannot deny the power of Justin Timberlake for dancing. And yep. a majority of the music that we listen to regularly wasn't really dance music. So when you would go to the bar and dance, you would probably be dancing to music that you didn't actively listen to at home, at least at first. Um, yeah. So, you know, you weren't going to go and dance to cat power. That would be real weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We danced to Neutral Milk Hotel. Yeah, you could dance to that for sure. And Michael Jackson. For sure. Are, you know, but canceled now. But yes, back yes, then. Canceled, canceled. Yeah, back yeah. Then. Prince. We danced to a lot of Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was, gosh, what a weird So time. much fun though. Yeah. Those dance parties. You just danced I, for hours. I want to go to a dance party like right now. I feel like it's, <laughs> you know? it's gone from my life and I hate it so much. I just miss how good it feels to dance with your friends and be like just a little, a little tipsy. Uh And then everybody's like hugging each other and singing along and stuff, you know? Yeah. And it's just like packed. Oh, yeah. People sweat gets on you. It's amazing. Yeah, so sweaty. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that concludes another March Down Memory Lane for us. Nostalgia City. Plus some sad, plus some happy points. Yeah, plus some just like thinking about things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Um, we'll, be, we'll be back next week with another episode about some hipster stuff. So stay tuned until then. Thank you. Bye. Bye.